Hey everyone, welcome to my show. I'm Tiffany with my so-called fabulous. It's so great to talk to you again today. And we are so excited during the month of October to really dedicate three solid podcasts to breast cancer awareness. And I've been so blessed with three totally different well, there's been four. There's four different guests that are lined up in the series, and this is number one in the second week of October. And I bring to you the fabulous surgeon, Dr. Kent, breast oncology surgeon. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, gosh, we're so blessed to have you and your wealth of information. And thank you for what you do for women in Fort Worth and I'm sure across the world. But everything that you do and that you contribute and... uh it's just a blessing to have you here to explain to my followers, listeners, your listeners and followers. So please welcome you and uh, tell us about yourself. Well, um, I was born in Louisiana and I kind of moved around a lot across the country. Um, I finally ended up going to college at University of Texas at Austin. My medical school is in San Antonio, was in San Antonio. And then I decided to be a general surgeon. So I did my training at a Nova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia. From there, I decided I wanted to specialize in breast cancer surgery. So I did a fellowship at USC in Los Angeles. Um, been married for 11 years. I have two wonderful boys that Aww. I love dearly. There it is. And her face just lit up. So <laughs> that's great. What age? Uh, six and seven. They're little. Yes. Little boys. They're little and they're active. Oh, I'll bet they are. And you're busy. Busy, 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 busy. busy. We got baseball, lacrosse, oh, karate, gymnastics. <laughs> uh, we got it all going yeah, on. Yeah, you're hitting And then everything. homework at some point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, tell us how you went from general surgery or being a, a, wanting to be, or you were in general surgery and then you decided on breast cancer. Did you have something in your life that someone was affected or, or to breast surgery? Sorry. So it has always kind of been there um, in my life. When I was at UT Austin, I majored in molecular biology and I did a little bit of bench work in a breast cancer lab. Around the same time, my grandmother was diagnosed and then ultimately passed away from breast cancer. And that didn't really make my decision as to this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but it sort of influenced my education and my focus a little bit. And then um, throughout, you know, my pursuit of going to medical school, I had some opportunities to do some shadowing. Um, and that's really where I got interested in general surgery was um, Harbor UCLA Medical Center. I was able to shadow some surgeons there. And then they were doing some clinical research projects in breast cancer that I got involved with, just purely coincidental. Um, and then from there, my interest peaked a little bit more. Um, I had a few great rotations at the start of residency. And then ultimately, I was able to do a way elective with a breast oncology surgeon who really just kind of sealed the deal for me. And uh, from there, I applied for the fellowship. And here I am. And here you are in Fort Worth. Wow. Do you love it? I love it. I absolutely love what I do. Oh, that is so great. I mean, you have to have such a great passion, any of us in our careers, but it's, I mean, you're just helping people so much and, and what you see. So um, I will have survivors on next week, mm -hmm. but tell me at what phase of the diagnosis you come in. Do you diagnose the, the, the patient? 
and, and, and do help me out and, and forgive me for the questions that I asked oh, incorrectly. No, so perfectly fine. Um, I usually am not the person who makes the diagnosis. Ideally, what happens is that patients are getting their mammograms every year starting at the age of 40 and that a cancer is picked up on a screening mammogram. We like to identify cancers before we can even feel them. So very small in size. When a screening mammogram is done and an abnormality is seen, the radiologist um, recommends additional imaging studies and ultimately a needle biopsy, just sticking a needle in that area of abnormality to see if it's a cancer or not. And if it's a cancer, that's where I come in then. So we have the radiologist involved, then we get the pathologist as the person who actually makes the diagnosis by looking at the cells under the microscope. Then patients come and see me. And by and large, the primary treatment of breast cancer is surgical, removing the cancer. But that is not the only treatment for breast cancer. Um, if you do surgery alone, it's usually not very effective. We need to kind combine that with other modalities. So once they have their surgery, then they usually see a medical oncologist, and sometimes radiation oncologist. But also my job is to determine if the patient maybe needs more imaging studies for surgical planning, or maybe they actually have a more aggressive cancer type and need to see the medical oncologist before surgery to get some medication to shrink the size of the tumor. So there's a lot of decision-making that goes into it, and we usually don't do it in a vacuum. We uh, take a multidisciplinary approach, which means that we consult with all of our colleagues, so medical oncology, radiation oncology, um, the plastic surgeon, the reconstructive surgeon, we all consult together with each other to take the best, appro best approach and individualize the care for the patient. And there's different types of breast cancer, right? I had no idea doing this research, there's different types. Explain that. I had no idea. So the cancer can be invasive or non-invasive, meaning it has the ability to spread or not yet has the ability to spread. It can be in different parts of your breast tissue. So the main categories are ductal or lobular. So it's within the ducts of your breasts or in the lobules of the breast. So those are our main classifications of breast cancer. Wow. That is so interesting. I, I have a friend that she, she, um, she found out she was, had can breast cancer because her nipples started bleeding and totally different from a, a different type of cancer other than finding in the lymph nodes, right? Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. is two totally different. And you take that approach differently, like you just said, correct? Right. There are multiple presentations of breast cancer. Sometimes patients feel a mass. Sometimes they notice that their whole breast is red. Sometimes they have just bloody nipple discharge. There are a lot of different ways we can diagnose the cancer or identify the cancer. So each patient, we take a different approach. Right. Interesting. The, the mammograms beginning at 40. Yes. That is that is set in stone, correct? That is correct. that, and, and is there a reason for that age? Because I, I have a friend that had it at thirty-eight. So the American Society of Breast Surgeons recommends that women start their annual mammograms at the age of forty. So mammograms decrease the risk of dying of breast cancer by twenty percent, and it's the only test that is demonstrated to reduce the risk of cancer mortality. So early detection allows for more treatment options because if the cancer's small, well, then we have surgical options there versus if the cancer big. We don't have as many options available to us. A lot of women feel like, well, I don't have a family history or I'm pretty healthy. I probably don't need to start mammograms at this point. But 75% of women diagnosed with breast cancer have no identifiable risk factors and 87% do not even have a first degree relative like a mother or a sister. Mm -mm. So early detection is important and starting at the age of 40 is important. Wow. I asked you before the show, uh, my daughter's father's mother. Mm -hmm 
had breast cancer. And my daughter asked me after after I was working re- researching on the you know this topic, Mom, is I am I at risk? So you were answering that question for me, right? So. Once we start getting into second degree relatives and distant relatives, although it is important in the history, it doesn't contribute as much. When you have a first degree relative with breast cancer, your risk of developing breast cancer goes from 12%, which is the average woman's lifetime risk, to 17%. When you add a second first degree relative, that goes to 25% lifetime risk. So we really focus on the first degree relatives, but it is also important to know what other family members have breast cancer because if let's say your mother doesn't have breast cancer, but grandmother has breast cancer and then her sister had breast cancer and then other family members have breast cancer, that that is significant. So it is important to know your overall family history. Right, right. So interesting because, you know, someone that has not dealt personally with breast cancer, this is so awakening to me. This is so, I mean, eye-opening and I am to so many women and men for sure, that that are that had significant others. I I may be embarrassing myself here, but can men have breast cancer? Absolutely, men can get breast cancer. Very low risk, mm-hmm. but they still can get breast cancer, and they do tend to present at a later stage only because when a man notices something wrong with his breast the first thing they're thinking of is not breast cancer. Mm -mm. A woman, if she feels her breast and notices a mass in her breast, her mind automatically goes to, oh, oh, there's a problem. But for a man, they're not thinking breast cancer. It is not on their radar. So it tends to progress a little bit farther before attention is brought to it. Right, exactly. Oh gosh, it's amazing. Okay, self-exams. Tell us about that because... We go to the OBGYN or we go, go, you know, go to your gynecologist and I'm really not sure if people really know how to do that. If you, you know what I mean? And right. like, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I'm doing it correctly. So you should get a breast exam by a clinician, a physician, at least once a year. So with your gynecology appointment. And then monthly, we we don't so much call it self-breast exam, but self-breast awareness. So at the same time of the month, Every month, you should check your breasts. And it doesn't matter what fashion, as long as it's somewhat organized. So you can go up and down like this, side to side, or in a spoke wheel pattern. But whatever you do, you just be consistent. You do it twice. You do a light touch and then a deeper touch. And then you'd go over to the other breast and do the same thing. And it's just getting familiar with your breasts. Some women have cysts or benign masses in their breasts that have already been imaged and they're aware of it. And so it's just sort of a reminder to themselves, I have something here, I already know what it is, or I have something here and it's changing. Maybe we need to take a second look at it. Exactly. Breast cancer is not environmental, right? Well, it can be. Breast cancer is not like smoking and lung cancer. There's, right. there, there isn't a you know something specific that a patient can do and you say, well, okay, you're a heavy smoker that probably contributed to your lung cancer risk, or you're a lifeguard and you're out in the sun a lot. Maybe that contributed to your melanoma. Breast cancer is like not like that. Um, only 10 to 15% of breast cancer are truly hereditary. Most people think that having a family history or hereditary breast cancer plays a big role. But outside of that, we just have risk factors that we know can contribute to risk. So you have controllable and uncontrollable risk factors. Uncontrollable risk factors are your age, your gender, your family history, your breast composition, your estrogen exposure. But controllable risk factors are obesity, your diet, drinking, and smoking. So all things that you can control. Okay. So talk to me about diet 
okay, obviously smoking, that's just, y'all don't do it. I mean, but the, the, the diet, tell me about the diet. Like what is it, is it organics? Is it, I mean, is it controversial? I, I try to make it easy. Just eat a healthy diet. Right. No, American Cancer Society recommends a plant-based diet. So when I was growing up, we had the food pyramid. Right, 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 right. right. Um, the food pyramid has gone away. That is no longer, it's no longer valid. What we think of as a, a plate, and if you divide that plate in half, half of it should be green leafy vegetables and fruits of a variety of colors, because those are all the different vitamins. Then if you take that remaining half and divide it again, so you have a fourth, there are your proteins and they should be lean meats, lentils, that sort of thing. And then your carbs, just be careful how you're picking your carbs. You know, if you have an option of white bread or wheat bread, pick the wheat. So mm-hmm. just being smart about what you pick. And I also try to be reasonable with some of my patients. So some of my patients like to eat a lot of steak or bacon or just have some unhealthier lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And I say, just in moderation. So make small changes because these are changes that will stick with you. If you try to change your diet overnight, that may not work, but just making small, smarter choices, maybe a smaller portion of that steak, or maybe doing that on special occasions, Mm -hmm. make your side a salad instead of fries or what, what you normally do. Just baby steps Mm -hmm. to a healthier lifestyle. And I would assume, no, I don't assume because I know processed foods Stay away from processed foods. I mean, eat real whole foods. Right? As, as much as you can. I know it is that hard. It's, it's, it, it is, is difficult. hard. Sure. Busy lifestyles, the expense of eating healthy. That's mm-hmm. that's a real problem. Um, and so if you if you take a step back and look at how you're living and how you're eating, some of the changes that you can make are really easy and really basic. And it's just kind of evaluating what you're doing, evaluating your lifestyle. And it's very easy to say that you don't have time. I don't have time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard to incorporate that, but you have to incorporate a healthy diet and exercise as much as possible. Mm-hmm. We could, because if you tell someone, okay, you cannot have X, Y, and Z, remove that completely and turn things around, they're, th- that's setting up for failure, right? Right. And it's important to keep in mind that 20% of all cancers in the U.S. are due to being overweight, inactive, increased alcohol, and poor nutrition. Wow. So along with having a healthy diet, exercise is also important. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It could just be getting outside and taking a brisk walk for 30 minutes, getting your heart rate up. The weather is going to get cooler eventually. Can you believe it? And a little so, chilly. It's a little nicer just, today, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is a great time to get out there before it gets cold. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned drinking. Um, Having a glass of wine, that's, I mean, that's still a risk, any drinking, right? Right. So if you're trying to be a real purist about it, any alcohol is going to contribute to risk of breast cancer. Um, so because alcohol is so incorporated in our social life, mm-hmm. we started looking at, okay, is it a lot of alcohol, a little bit of alcohol? So what we found out, if you drink about three drinks of three drinks a week, you're increasing your risk of cancer about 15%. Oh my stars. Some people think that's a lot. Some people think it's don't. So again, it goes back to moderation because a lot of people already have developed their habit of how many drinks they have a week, a day or whatnot. And instead of telling someone, nope, you got to stop cold turkey because it's going to increase your risk, cutting back or saving it for, you know, the weekend or special occasions instead of doing that every day. Right. Interesting. Oh my gosh. 
my listeners going, wait, 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 stop, start. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Click. Never mind. I know, I know. Oh my goodness. So you, we were talking earlier about your role in the team and um, survivors coming on next week. Their team, how much they trust, and I mean the different types of physicians that there are. If they're hand holding, or if just you know, so many of so many of my friends that have gone through this is like cut through the chase. Let's just right. let's just get this. I need to know what 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 I'm about to to face and and go right. So, right. how does your team deal with 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 different? Is it just patient by patient? Patient by patient, we are really blessed in Fort Worth to have a lot of great doctors with a lot of different personalities. And what I always tell patients is you need to be comfortable with your team. I can pretty much guarantee anybody that you go to, anybody I send you to is going to do a wonderful job and take great care of you, but you have to be comfortable with your team. So if you're not comfortable with me or you're not comfortable with the oncologist that I referred you to or any aspect of the care then that's not going to work for you. You have to trust that we're going to do the right thing because no matter how much research you try to do on your own, it's not going to compare to the years of training that we have and staying up to date in the most recent clinical trials and things that have been more recently approved. You have to trust that we know what we're doing and we have your best, best interests at heart. And so if you don't feel comfortable with that, then you need to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. And any physician would say, I want my patient to feel comfortable with me and trust that I'm going to make the right choices for them. And if they don't, then that relationship won't work. And some patients need a lot of handholding and some patients just give it to me straight. And everybody has a different personality and some personalities work better with others. Right, right. Oh my gosh. I'm sure you see everything, right? I mean, and I understand that there is a population that do not get treated at all because they can't afford it, right? right they're right. afraid. They're afraid of losing their hair. They're afraid of, of so is is that is that real? The fear? No, just not being treated. Absolutely. Ugh. We do see people come in late stages because they just didn't want to accept that accept there was something it. going on or there were there were barriers to their care. Barriers is one of the big things that we deal with. And we meet weekly for a tumor conference where it's that multidisciplinary approach I was talking about. And one of the things we discuss are what are the barriers to this patient's care? Is it a ride to the hospital? Is it the expense of getting all of these studies, the biopsies, the surgeries, all of these things are quite expensive. And depending on the insurance plan, some of it may not be covered. How's the patient going to take care of all of this? All of the treatments that come along with breast cancer, any treatment from the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, those things are all expensive. Can the patient, will the patient be able to afford it with their health insurance plan? Or if they're not insured, what are our resources here in town to be able to get coverage for them so that they can get the appropriate care? Are there resources? There are some resources in town. Um, We usually use um, Cancer Care Services, provides a lot of resources for our patients, financial resources, counseling resources, and plugs them in with different different financial assistance for these patients. Right. Interesting. I mean, and that's real. I mean, the uninsured for Mm -hmm. sure. Definitely. That is amazing. So the emotional, the emotional toll that it takes on the patient, that you have resources for that as well. Right. There are great counselors all throughout the area. Like I mentioned, Cancer Care Services, the Joan Katz Cancer Resource Center at 
Baylor All Saints Hospital is a great resource for patients as well. They provide lots of different counseling services. They also provide counseling services for children because it's difficult for a mother to explain to her children of any age that they're going to be going through this process. And so they provide that counseling. They have survivors there that are lay navigators that help um, patients kind of know what they're, what they're going to be going through Mm -hmm. and are there with them through the process. The entire process. So not all patients are treated equally. For example, can it be where they would not have radiation or chemotherapy? Is there oral medication? Absolutely. There is a wide variety of ways that we take care of the patient based off of what their pathology is, the size of the cancer compared to their breasts, their age plays a factor, their their overall health and ability to tolerate some of the treatments plays a factor. Um, So not everybody gets chemotherapy. Um, Just because you have a cancer diagnosis doesn't mean that you're going to need chemotherapy, actually. Not everybody needs radiation. And breast radiation isn't as scary as a lot of people think. Yes, radiation can affect the skin, um, but because it's external to the body caveat can be pretty well tolerated. Some people don't end up needing radiation. A lot of women are afraid of losing their breasts and not everybody has to have a mastectomy. Actually, we kind of are moving towards less aggressive surgeries now. Really? Um, So we have lots of great treatment options for patients. Um, We have it all here in Fort Worth. We have lots of reconstructive options available to them as well if they end up needing to go down that road. I mean, I I understand that once you do get to that phase because you are diagnosed, then you go through the treatment that's that's selected and then the reconstruction part. So, you know, I've talked to people about did you get do you have nipples? Do you not? Do you make that decision? Do you do you do you have people that do not even get reconstruction at all? I do. I actually have quite a few people that don't get reconstruction because reconstruction is a process and you have to be willing to go through the process. It hopefully can be done in one surgery, but sometimes leads to multiple surgeries. And some women just kind of depending on where they are in their life, feel like they're comfortable with the idea of not having reconstruction and just having their surgery and moving on. Some women aren't good candidates for reconstruction also, just dependent on their health history cancer, uh, aggressiveness of their cancer, the need for additional treatments after surgery. Sometimes we can do it, but we'll have to tell the patients they'll have to delay it as much as possible. If somebody's going to get reconstruction, we try to do it at the same time as their primary surgery, but sometimes we do have to delay it. Right. Right. I have heard, heard, uh, survivors say, I just didn't want one more surgery. I just, I didn't want to deal with it because a pain, fear, And then the mental toll that it takes on them and the caregivers, you know, if you do have a caregiver in your life. Right. 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 That's just unbelievable. So breastfeeding, talk to me about women that are breastfeeding. Is this, I mean, is that, does it help you control um, or does it bring the risk factors down? Tell me about that. It is thought to help from the sense that estrogen exposure is a risk factor. So the more estrogen exposure you have, the higher risk of developing breast cancer. But a lot of times you can't really control that. So I put estrogen exposure in the uncontrollable category because you're not going to decide how many pregnancies you're going to have to reduce that risk of 
getting breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm. If you were planning on having two, you're not going to have five just because you might be able to reduce your risk of developing breast cancer. So anything that decreases estrogen exposure decreases your risk. So pregnancy, you have lower estrogen levels at that time. And same when you're nursing, you have lower estrogen levels at that time. So it is thought to help reduce the risk of breast cancer. But that being said, just because you breastfed does not mean that you won't get breast cancer. Right. So it's just one of the things that are in the uncontrollable list. But that doesn't mean that if you have nursed a child, you won't get breast cancer. Exactly. Exactly. What is the youngest that you have that the statistics on that you know of or that you've had in your practice? The youngest patient that I've seen I believe she was 22 and that was in fellowship. Okay. And then the oldest? The oldest is, oh, she was a A spry, wonderful (laughs) age of, I think, I want to say 93. No way. 93 or I think it was 93. 90 plus. Yes. And she did her water aerobics every day. Yes. And she was just in great shape. And there was no reason not to remove the primary tumor. And she did. Um, and she did great. She okay. was a little frustrated that I asked her to stay out of the water for a couple of weeks. <laughs> but outside of that, she she did great. Oh my goodness. So um in the can you discuss the process of once you do remove the the breast and what makes the decision if you remove one or two? That's a big question. Well, so I'll back up and say that not everybody has to have their breast removed. Right, we actually kind of move in the direction of yeah, not because it. really that decision of removing the breast or not is based on the size of the cancer compared to the size sure. of the breast. And if you have a larger breast and a larger tumor, that's okay too. We can incorporate our plastic surgeon colleagues and sort of do some tissue rearrangement and give you a reduction lift and do symmetry surgery on the other side. So we can take out big tumors without having to remove the whole breast. Right. So remind me again, your question was about so removing the breast. Yes, and doing one versus two. One versus two. Okay. So we know that very few women will actually benefit from removing the other breast. If you were diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age, say your 30s and you have an aggressive cancer, there is a possibility that you would benefit from removing the other breast, but that benefit is small. Wow. Um, the other thing, other category of women is if you have a genetic mutation, the BRCA gene mutation in particular, that is demonstrated to be beneficial. But outside of that, removing the other breast from a longevity standpoint, from a survival standpoint, doesn't contribute. But sometimes we do it for other reasons. So symmetry, when you're removing one breast, and then you have the other breast there. Sometimes it's difficult to make you symmetrical. Exactly. So that's one reason, but that shouldn't be the only reason. Um, a lot of times we do it for just kind of personal preference anxiety, which which is a big deal. And I tell patients, it is okay to feel that way, that you have gone through this traumatic experience. And now I'm telling you, okay, you still have to go back and get mammograms on the other side. Mm. And they have a lot of anxiety around that. And they will say, well then I'd rather just have both breasts removed because I don't feel like I can live my life to its fullest when I'm constantly worried about getting cancer in the other breast. I know you're telling me that the risks aren't as high, but I still feel like I need to do that. And that's fine. That's very valid. Now, once you are, it's five years, is it that it's that it's the fifth year or that, that, that you're, you're kind of slight, you, the risk goes down from, from having a reoccurring. It really depends more on cancer type Yeah. and the more aggressive cancers, that's kind of where we look at the 
five-year mark, but we we still follow patients lifelong because we have had patients that have recurred 10 years, 12 years out. And so we don't want to let a patient go and say, you're free. Don't have to worry about this ever again. What I tell patients is let me worry about it, but you just all have to keep your appointment. So you just have to do what we tell you to do, but it's my responsibility to keep tabs on you and make sure that if you do get a recurrence, we're catching it early. Right. Catching it early. Absolutely. And once, and I'm going, I am jumping all over the place here, but, but, but if you, when your breasts are removed, you still need to get mammograms. Is that correct? Nope. No. Once your breasts are removed, you don't need to get mammograms, but you do need to get a physical exam. Okay. So I tell patients that you don't get a mammogram, but I am now your mammogram. So you need to come to me and let me feel your skin or your reconstructed breasts um, because there is still a 10% chance that you can get a cancer, even if you have a mastectomy. And that's because of the way, just the way that our anatomy is. We cannot guarantee that every last single normal breast cell will be gone. We check for margins. We make sure your cancer is gone, but we know some normal breast cells will get left behind. It's just impossible to guarantee every last cell is gone. And because of that, there's that 10% risk there. Absolutely. Gosh, that's amazing. How has mammograms, ouch, (laughs) I'd rather get a mammogram than, of course, but how have they changed throughout the year? I just had mine a few weeks ago and I had, they they had another person in their training. So they were training another girl in the puddle on the bottom and they're pushing tight and tight. I'm like, careful, 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 stop, please. <laughs> so how have they changed? I, and, I mean, because I have seen changes. Mm-hmm. I'm 56, so 16 years I've been getting mammograms. So how, have, how has technology changed? I mean, I'm sure rapid, right? Well, so in the past, we would just do what we call a 2D mammogram, which is two viewed. So you would get compressed in two different, two Mm -hmm. different ways. And then that would be it. Um, and then came the development of 3d mammography. And so they do take a few more views, but then the computer puts all of that together and the radiologist can scroll through. So they, when they're looking at their monitor, they get the sense of a 3d breast versus two flat images. So the 3d mammography has shown to improve detection of breast cancer and also reduce the false positive rate. So false positive is biopsying something that doesn't end up being a cancer. So it has helped in that department as well. Mm. So it allows them to be a little bit more accurate. Oh, so they're just the technology and is it continuing to improve, right? There are improvements all the time. All the time, all the time. Now I, I will go ahead and ask you this, and this is a layman here. They must mash, mash, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> There's no way around it, right? right? The It's just the way the technology is. If you compress them as much as possible, they want to compress the breast so that they're able to get a really good view. If you don't compress as much, sometimes you get overlap of different things and you can't tell if, if you think about it. If you compress something this way, if you compress it and you're looking down, you can't tell when things are on top of each other in the same line. Mm-hmm. So when you compress it enough, it flattens everything mm. out. <laughs> yes. yes. And then now that I'm going through mammograms, <laughs> I, I have a lot of sympathy for my patients, but it, it allows them to just detect more and there's less interference with things that are overlapping. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's something else. I'm not, I don't look forward to it, but I'm, I'm glad when, when I can have yeah, a great, great reading. I, I don't look forward to mine. And no. I feel like every year I get the notice, get the notice and I get the uh, phone call from the imaging center. You can come on down. We have an opening. Like, oh, I'm <laughs> not really today. Busy. 
Not today. But I don't let myself go outside of the month. So I usually get my mammograms in February. And I have a goal of I will not get outside of February before I get my mammogram. I'll maybe delay it a little here or there, but I will get it in the month of February. And so that's kind of my personal goal there. I give myself a little bit of slack, but I won't let myself go outside of that. So implants. I have implants. So... Does that have anything to do with breast cancer? Nope. No. It does not increase your risk of developing breast okay. cancer. That's a, I mean, I, another question that's not on my outline, but I mean, I know a lot of people ask about that too, you know, and just, you know, implants, yes or no. Yeah. Mm, good to know. Mm-hmm. Well, where do you see, um, where do you see the changes coming other than you did mention the non, the less invasive, what do you see the future here coming up, um, of breast cancer and, and all the research that's been done and, the, and, and what we can look forward to? And there's a lot of research going on in different medical therapies. So from the medical oncology side, they're uh, researching in different kind of immunotherapies, different kind of chemotherapies. You know, the goal is to provide patients with the best treatment with the least amount of toxicity. So the side effects. So you want to get the most bang for your buck. Um, if you give somebody a very harsh medication, they can't tolerate it. What's the point of that? Mm. So that's those are our goals, mostly in the medical oncology standpoint. Um, and of course, you know, allowing patients to have better outcomes with those medications. From right. the surgical side, we're trying to reduce the amount of surgery we do. So there's always been a big push to move people from mastectomy to lumpectomy mm-hmm. as much as possible. So instead of removing the whole breast, just removing the cancer with a, a rim of normal tissue. With that comes the radiation, but there's also been uh, changes in the radiation oncology standpoint from always radiating the whole breast to very select patients. We can radiate part of the breast, but that is a discussion you have with the radiation oncologist. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's a candidate for that, but that's where the changes in radiation oncology are occurring. In our surgical world as well with uh, lymph node surgery. So we do operate on the lymph nodes because that's the first place that breast cancer spreads. We are trying to reduce the number of lymph nodes that we take out because when we take out a lot of lymph nodes, it can cause pain and swelling in the arm. And we mm-hmm. don't want to to do that to patients as much as possible. So that's where our our changes in our, our surgical management are coming. Wow. The I'm not sure how to ask this question. Um, but if you get if you if once you you don't once you, it spreads, where would the cancer spread? Lymph nodes you just said, what would be next? Once it gets outside of the lymph nodes, then it's not as predictable as to where, where it can go. It can go to your bone, you can go to liver. But we don't have a, okay, it's gone from the lymph nodes to this spot in particular. So when we are trying to do what we call a staging workup, looking to see if the cancer has spread anywhere else, we usually do a CT scan of the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, and then we look at the bones as well. Mm -hmm. We don't just isolate it to the liver to just the bones because there isn't a single one spot that it could potentially go to next. Right. Absolutely. Gosh, you have a wealth of information. I'm just so, so proud of, of the work that all of you do and, and, and supporting women's wellness and health and, and thank you for what you do. You're welcome. Goodness gracious. And I'm hoping I'm helping by spreading the word and, and I know you are as well. So, but thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh my goodness. It's been just so fabulous. So how can we find you if, I, I mean, and I know... <laughs> I don't know. This is the question. I I know you're on Instagram, but I, your your offices. 
Right. So I'm on Instagram. I'm not as social media savvy, but I believe it's Vishali Kent. I think it is. MD. There it um, is. So my first and last name. Um, I have two offices in Fort Worth. I have one on the, the medical district campus, which is on the campus of Baylor All Saints. I do also have another office in the Southwest area on the property of Harris Southwest Hospital. Okay. So I have two different parts of the area that I cover. That you cover. Great. Well, thank you again for being on the show and all of your information on all you do. And everyone, keep listening. Oh my goodness. We're trying to get up in that Apple, Spotify world and podcast world. And so go rate and review and let us know what you think and if, what do you want to hear for sure. Follow me at Tiffany C. Blackman and everyone, we've got a lot of information coming in October and everyone, please keep being fabulous. Fabulous.